gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 17. We are reading verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered the village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. This morning we come and we confess that we are poor, but all riches are invested in your son. We confess that we are weak, but yet he is strong. We confess that we are darkness but yet that he is light. And so we come and we ask that you would teach us and that you would lead us, that you would guide us in your truth. You have made us your own. We belong to you. And so lead us in your way. We ask God that you would speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the next few weeks, we are going to take a series, a brief tour through the Psalms to look at the theme of spiritual worship ahead of a new sermon series that will begin at some point in September. And so we will focus on this idea of spiritual worship. It is good to be back with you, with my home congregation, as I traveled around and visited many different congregations and had to refrain from stopping the congregation as they mumbled or some other thing. It's been a very inappropriate outburst on my part, but it's wonderful to be back amongst your prayers and your singing and your song and your responses. It's a gift for me today, and, uh, and I thank you for, um, for exuberantly responding. But as a kid, I grew up as a Presbyterian, but I was exiled in a Methodist church. The one Presbyterian church in my hometown, it was on the corner of 14th and Elm, was just simply too much for my family. So Jarvis Memorial became our adopted church. It was a spiritual home with many good things. I was taught the gospel there, and for a decade, that was our place until a new Presbyterian church was planted in Greenville, North Carolina. The main implication of all of this sojourn between Methodism and Presbyterianism, though, was that I was outside of the mainstream of Christian expression in eastern North Carolina. That may catch some of you off guard, but perhaps you haven't been there. Down east, as we say, religion is dominated by three expressions. You can normally find them on the four corners of a crossroad, Southern Baptist, free will Baptist, and then Pentecostal holiness. And so every week, as a pretty buttoned-up Presbyterian Methodist kid, I pondered those large yard signs that would appear. They would appear sometime in the spring in bold letters announcing revival. The speaker was announced, 
and the time at which revival was going to take place was announced. Now, I was too buttoned up to participate, and I was not really a sophisticated theologian, I gotta admit, but I had a sense that there was something strange about this arrangement. Was revival something that you can really announce or schedule? But years later, I began to recognize something. There was something really important that those churches that were far outside of my own tradition and my own customs and my own habits, maybe my own preferences, but that they were pointing to something extremely important because they were signaling the need for constant renewal amongst the people of God that God's people were constantly in a state of weakness, that we fluctuate and that we're fickle, and that we are in need of the renewing presence of God. But additionally, I began to learn about something native to my Presbyterianism. There was something that God did schedule for the church. And it wasn't perhaps that God scheduled revival and announced exactly when it was going to happen, but that God had set apart some sacred time where such a thing as revival could take place. And it wasn't just one spring. It was far more mundane and ordinary than that. That God had actually set apart sacred time week by week, one day in seven by one day in seven, in which his church would gather in his presence to be renewed and revitalized, to be awakened to the grace of God, that fixed point in the calendar that we know as the Sabbath. Psalm 50 that we read this morning is a psalm that is associated with Sabbath worship in the Israelite tradition and which Christians have reflected on as well. It is designed to be a psalm that brings us into a renewed relationship with God. It's an opportunity to renew our covenant with him. It's important to recognize that this psalm differs from all the other psalms in one very significant way. Most of the Psalms are prayers, prayers offered to God. But Psalm 50 is actually a speech, a one-way monologue, a speech from God to us, his church, directed at us, in which he is instructing us and guiding us. Direct speech from God as we gather before him. It is a direct encounter. It is a meeting with God. And so as we consider this idea of spiritual worship, it's critical for us to ask the question of what do we learn here in this direct speech from God as we encounter him and gather in his presence. And this morning we'll look at three things about this spiritual or true worship. We'll see something of its structure. We'll see something of its dynamic. And finally, we'll also see something of its goal. So let's look at each of those three things briefly. First, in verses 1 through 7, we see the structure of true worship. Now, Psalm 50 begins in a way familiar to you if you worship here regularly at Christ Church. It begins with a call or with a summons to worship. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. This is the majestic call from God himself to all of creation, including his people, that they assemble in his presence. In the Old Testament context is that 
Israel was to assemble at the temple or the tabernacle that preceded it, that they were to gather there. And prior to the tabernacle, Israel gathered at Mount Sinai. But they were called to come, and they were called to gather there in the presence of God. And that the tabernacle, the temple, that this was the dwelling place of God on the earth, it was the nexus between heaven and earth. And that through that place, God was approached in his heavenly dwelling. And so we no longer today have a mountain, and we no longer have a physical temple that we go to, this nexus between heaven and earth. But what we do have is a fulfillment of all that that was pointing to. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16 that the gathered, the assembled people of God are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple of God when we gather together, and this means by implication that God is here among us. And so God calls us, and he calls us to assemble, and he calls us together, and he brings us together with one voice that we would call on him and that we would listen to him. We gather because God is among us. In verse 5, we see that God summons all creation, and when he summons us, he enters into a specific dialogue. Follow with me. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And so he gathers all of creation, but who does he speak to? You, the church, my faithful ones, his covenant partners. And so he's bringing all the creation together to address us specifically. In verse 7, we discover then what he says. Listen carefully. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. And friends, this is the structure of worship. When we gather before God, when we hear the call to assemble, and then when we assemble in his presence, there is something that happens. Because you see, God dwells, and what we're told in verse 2 is the perfection of beauty. And it is in the presence of that God that then our sins are revealed and exposed. In all of our faults and our failures, our sins and struggles, they become manifest there and they're made known to us. God evaluates us in his presence. And this is why Christian worship has been structured in the way that we follow it and with following Christians for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. We have a call in which God brings us in and assembles us. And then we recognize in the beauty of that perfection that we are unworthy, and so we confess our sins to him. It's the structure. Several years ago, someone commented to me, that the structure of our sin, of our service with all of the focus on the confession of sin was just too repetitive and too much. And so he wanted to sit down with me to talk about broadening my taste and styles and preferences for worship. He wasn't expecting that I was going to turn that conversation somewhat, not so much to talk about styles of worship, but divinely given structures of worship. This is what encountering God looks like 
You find this pattern throughout the scriptures. You can look in Isaiah 6 or in any number of other psalms, but when we meet with the perfection of beauty, when we gather in God's presence, when that encounter is truly and really taking place, you will find the revelation of human sinfulness. This is what we can expect from God. He assembles us for this task. This summer, we were traveling through London, and we were on the underground, and I began to notice that there were signs everywhere. They were on the doors of the subway cars. It was on the ground of the, of the metro itself. Then it was on the platform, and then there was a loud PA system. The sign said, mind the gap, and then the PA system was blaring, mind the gap when you exit the train. Now, the gap was about a four-inch space between the train and between the platform. And it got so annoying to be told over and over to mind the gap and to see the sign to mind the gap, but why did they have to continue to repeat to mind the gap? Because people were missing the gap. <laughs> I missed the gap. You know, stumble. I mean, it, it's so easy to do. And friends... Sin is tenacious. Sin is pernicious. We struggle with it. It's a massive problem. It's a problem in your life. It's a problem in mine. And so we have to constantly and repetitively, Sabbath by Sabbath, as we enter into the presence of God, we are confronted by him. And we're brought down into the reality of who he is and the reality of who we are. And that's just simply the structure of Christian worship. We have to mind the gap. Examination and evaluation by God are always going to be part of a true encounter with him. But some of you may ask then, if this is the case, if the exposure and confession of sin is always part of a true encounter with God, then doesn't that just leave me as an uncertain an anxious mess. It's important to consider the context of the psalm because please note that yes, God calls all of creation, but who is he specifically speaking to in Psalm 50? The church. He calls them his faithful ones. He calls them his covenant partners in verse 5. He says, I am God, your God, in verse 7. And so what we have to reckon with here is that when God brings us into his presence and he exposes our sins, he's not out to get us. That framework so deeply plagues the American conscience. God is well pleased with us through his son Jesus who's given himself on our behalf. But now God is willing to bring us into judgment to reveal and expose our sins out of his deep commitment and love for you. He is seeking to purify you. And so he bruises us in order to heal us. He does it in order to save us. He's not casting us out when he brings us under his judgment and scrutiny. We are his adopted family, sons and daughters, forgiven and free. And so we can then endure that encounter because we know his great love for us. And friends, this is the gift of the gospel. It frees us to enter into that communion with God where we can expect that sins will be revealed and exposed. This is the structure of Christian worship and this is how it works and this is exactly 
what we can expect from God. Now, secondly, we also see something of the dynamic of true worship. If you follow along in verses 8 through 15, we now actually arrive at the speech that God issues to the church. There's a second section in verses 9 through 20 um, that we will, or 16 through 20, that we'll follow along with in a minute. But first, we'll see in verses 8 through 15 this dynamic of true worship. Now, in these verses, we have God's evaluation of the church and his revealing his interest in the purity of the church's worship in particular. You could say God is focused on the first table of the law, the first four commandments, the purity of our heart being offered to him as we gather before him in worship. And we see that he has two main concerns in these verses. First, in verse 8, we see that he's concerned by empty rituals. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So the Israelites were showing up at the temple. They were making their offerings and sacrifices. They were doing everything they were supposed to do. But is that what God wants? Is that all that he wants? No. Israel, like us, filled with their own fickleness and their own unfaithfulness, their own hard-heartedness and their own stubbornness. And so they were misusing the sacrificial system even though they were engaging in it. And this highlights one of our own chief weaknesses of the church. It belonged to the church then and there and it belongs to the church here and now is that we can easily engage God with empty ritual. Calvin says it this way, humans are naturally disposed to an outward show in religion. Measuring God by themselves, they imagine that an attention to ceremonies constitutes the sum of their duty. And so we imagine that God is something like us and he'll be pleased with just an external performance if we just put on a good face and get along. Calvin is saying, no, God is not like us. That God wants something deeper and more profound than just external show. And so Israel was offering their sacrifices, the very sacrifices that God prescribed for them, but they were doing so only in an external and outward manner. They're going through the emotions, but not truly engaged with God. And in verse 14, we find what God does want from us as we approach him. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. See, in the Old Testament context, the offering was just not enough. It was to be offered in a spiritual way. There was to be thanksgiving associated with that offering. It was the burnt offering that we read about in verse 8. This was the atonement offering. And so with this offering, there was to be a thankful spirit of what God had done to relieve Israel, to bring them out of Egypt, to forgive their sins, to renew them in their covenant despite all their sins and their failures. There was to be thanksgiving. And so the offerings were to be suffused with grace. That is every part of the offering. Thanksgiving was not just something to be done at one particular point in the service and then satisfied. But the whole thing 
was to be characterized by thanksgiving. And friends, this is what is true of our worship as well, that it is to be suffused with thanksgiving. This week I was working through Paul's letter to the Colossians and was reminded of this. If you turn to Colossians 3 and verse 17, or 16, excuse me, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And friends, this is the dynamic of Christian worship when we encounter God, is that we're not to come in an empty ritual, but how we are to come is with a thankful heart, filled with the grace of God, saturated with the grace of God, knowing all the benefits that God has given to us, conscious of those benefits, and then rendering thanks to him for them. Of course, the challenge is that we come week by week, and we can grow stale, and we can grow cold. Several years ago, I joined a gym, and it was a group exercise class. If you've ever been a part of something like that, you'll know what I'm talking about. But it works where there's an entire group doing the same exercises. Now, there are people of all kinds of shapes and sizes and ages. I am on the upper register of this particular group, and some people are extremely fit extremely fit and so I walk in and it's fairly intimidating because we're all going to be doing the same exercises and I often think to myself how am I going to keep up well and the coach will tell you you don't keep up you go at your own pace you do as many repetitions as you can you do you offer what you are able to that day and so from time to time I will uh, not quite be um, as exuberant as the coach would like. And uh, we'll, he will come over and he will question me. He said, um, you know, uh, don't you want a little more weight with that? Um, can't you do a few more reps? Um, you're kind of hanging out over here. You're not really engaging. You seem to be taking long rests. And friends, you see, the coach can only provide the structure. And then he can chide me and point me to the way to best engage that structure. And this same thing is true about Christian worship. We can only provide the structure. We can give you all the avenues and the channels. But at the end of the day, we can't make Thanksgiving happen. We can give you a song filled with Thanksgiving, but can we make Thanksgiving happen? No, we can't. This has to be the work of God and His Spirit in our hearts and with us being prepared and ready to come to encounter God. The structure is there. We are to work into it, not to engage in empty ritual. But we also see a second concern of God in, in our worship. In verses 9 through 13, we also see that God is concerned with our motivations. Follow closely in these verses. I will not except a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? These verses can seem a bit strange and odd at first, a little remote but what is happening is that Israel was always attempted to adopt the views of their neighbors 
and to incorporate those religious views into their own belief and faith in God and their own practices. And the neighbors of Israel believed one thing about the gods. They believed that when they made offerings, that they were feeding and satisfying the gods, that they were keeping them happy. Offerings were a means to keep their gods happy so that then things would go well with them and with their family. In other words, an offering was about manipulation. It was a way of if I do this, then you, my God, will do that. If I keep you happy, then you have to bless me. All right, that was the system. And so God responds by explaining that he didn't need their cows, that he didn't need their birds, that he owned them all. That the sacrificial system of Israel was profoundly different at its heart, that God didn't need them to offer him anything, and also he wasn't looking to be manipulated. That this is not the way gospel religion works. That gospel religion is not about keeping me happy so that I will bless you. And friends, we can be deeply indebted to the same type of thinking still today. The common problem that there's a motivation behind our offering ourselves to God, whether that's in our money or in our praise or in our obedience, that we can think, if I do this for you, then you'll do this for me. If I'm really good, if I'm a good church member, then you'll keep me from cancer. If I'm really good, then my kids will all stay on the straight and narrow. If I'm really good, I'll have a good marriage. We can think all kinds of things, fill in the blank, but all of it, all of that garbage is an attempt to put a claim on God so that we can control him and we can keep our, him under our thumb. Psalm 50 rightly identifies this as pagan religion. It's not Christianity. It's not gospel. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And in verse 15, we do discover, though, what God wants. He doesn't want this manipulation. Rather, what he wants, he says, And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And so rather than an approach to him that seeks to manipulate him, what does God want? He wants to, you to come to him weak and needy, dependent and poor, and to call upon him, to recognize that you have no other resources for deliverance, you have no other sources for help, that you've got nothing else, that you can't manipulate him, that you can't put a claim on him, that you are indebted to him, that he has given you everything, and so he wants you to actively live in that place, not one time in your life walking an aisle, not just in some momentous times of your life, but each and every day, throughout everything, he wants your life to be infused with the sense of dependence and invocation or just simply calling on God. And so in our formal worship services or out in your life, we want to be characterized by these two things, thanksgiving and invocation. Giving thanks to God for all that he gives us. Everything that we offer him suffused with that and calling on God in weakness and dependence. This is the dynamic of true spiritual worship. And finally, what we also find as the psalm closes in verses 16 through, through 21, 
we see the goal of this true spiritual worship. Shifts in verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, he's still speaking to the church. He's speaking to those who are compromised. What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Now, in these verses, God's goal for us is stated in the negative. God is concerned with integrity amongst his people. And by integrity, what I mean is an integrated life. That is, with what we profess to believe, what we confess, and our conduct. This doesn't mean that you're going to be morally impure and right. We've already seen in the context of this psalm that an encounter with the true and the living God will lead to confession of sin. So are you going to be free from sin? A loud no, please. Um, That wasn't rhetorical. (laughs) No, we will not. But a life of integrity is one that also walks in that humility of repentance. And what God is focused on here is not the goal. What he is criticizing is when someone can recite the statutes, they can engage in the confession of faith, and then they simply have no concern that they make up their own boundaries and their own measures, and they do as they please. This is not God's goal. He desires for our confession and our conduct to be working in harmony with one another, not for there to be a gross gap. And friends, the church is never free from this weakness. It happens at every level of our membership, It happens from the ministers to the officers down to the average pew. This is just characterizes the weakness of the church. We can recite the covenant recalling all that God has done for us, remembering all that he commands, but fail to apply those to ourselves and listen to him seriously. It's a horrible problem. Rather than listening to God's boundaries, we erect our own boundaries and decide what's good and where blessing is going to be had. We recite the covenant, but live in absolute contradiction to it. This is not God's goal. Verses 19 through 21 goes on to identify three specific areas. There are just three commandments, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth of the Ten Commandments, where he's addressing our possessions, our sexuality, and also our speech. These are not exhaustive. They're just illustrations. But that we are to render our God, ourselves to God. Why? because he has given himself to us. Never forget the order of this, that grace is always the first word. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, gratitude is always the second word. And this is the goal of true worship, a life of gratitude rendered to God, available to him, teachable to him. And so this is the goal of worship. And so, friends, true worship, we commune with God. We do so through a structure in which we truly encounter God, not just the idea of God. We truly encounter him. We meet with him in this place, in a structure in which the perfection of beauty reveals all of our imperfections, and yet we're assured of his great love and commitment to us. We then engage in a dynamic, a dynamic of thanksgiving and invocation, calling on God from our weakness. And we do all of this with a certain goal, 
that we be transformed. In all of our humility and all of our knowledge of our weakness, we ask God to continue to teach us and to guide us. And so as we enter into this series, let's ask for God's help, that we be those worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, that we know what it is to engage week by week with him, and then for our week in between to be shaped and formed by that encounter. Let's ask for his help. Father, we confess that we desire to be true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And so, God, we ask that the structure, that this would be the reality of our experience here at Christ Church, that as we gather week by week, the perfection of beauty, your glory would shine forth, and that we can bow before you, all of our sins exposed, knowing that you are our gracious Father who relieves all of our sins through your Son, Jesus. And help us also in all of our worship and all of our lives that it be suffused with thanksgiving and with calling upon you from weakness and dependence. Give us grace. And may this great goal be recognized in which our confession of faith and our conduct in life are integrated and whole. Help us, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.